1 Thessalonians. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians. Hopefully, um, hopefully you all enjoyed uh, Ecclesiastes. I know we as the pastors um, you know, get together weekly and talked uh, on more than one occasion how much we just enjoyed Ecclesiastes and, and uh, just what God was speaking to us uh, through that time. And I hope uh, that you found it useful uh, as well. Now we're going to be the next, I don't know, week, months, however long in First uh, and Second Thessalonians. So today we're going to look at just the first five verses. We're not going to make it uh, too uh, awfully far and we're going to look at really virtues uh, of a gospel-centered church. Have you ever thought about what, what the virtues of the church are? Um, and, and I don't like, we're not going to get through an exhaustive list today of virtues of the church, but we're going to look at a few that Paul uh, is zeroing in on uh, in this passage. And so just to give you uh, a little bit uh, of background um, as we get into uh, this letter to the Thessalonians, uh, Thessalonica was the capital of a, the Roman province of Macedonia. Uh, had a population uh, somewhere between 100,000 to 200,000, so not a small city uh, by any means. It had a natural harbor, location on busy east, west, and north-south uh, trade routes, and so it just made it a really flourishing city with lots of culture and kind of a mishmash uh, of people. I don't know if you've ever spent much time in cities, but as you know, in cities, a lot of times there's people from all walks of life, uh, all different kinds of backgrounds, all different cultures, all different beliefs and worldviews that tend uh, to come together in the cities, and this was uh, certainly uh, Thessalonica. Paul established this church on his second missionary journey uh, sometime around A.D. 49 to 51, uh, and this is actually one of Paul's earliest letters, also written somewhere between A.D. 49 and 51. And so what we gather from that, since we don't know exact time frames, is that this letter that Paul wrote to this church he established was written probably not long after he established the church. Uh, some commentators think maybe even a few months after the establishment of this church uh, is when this letter was written. So uh, this wasn't like it was 10 years later that he wrote back to the church. This was a very short time after it was established. And we know that it was Paul because it starts out in chapter 1, verse 1, uh, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. So a typical greeting of who would be writing the letter. And uh, Silvanus, you may not know that name, but you might know the name Silas. Same person, Silvanus and Silas. So Paul and Silas and Timothy, likely the letter written by Paul with uh, Silas and Timothy's name attached to it. It's not really thought that they were necessarily uh, co-authors per se, uh, but since they all played a role in establishing the church, that, that Paul was the author of this letter written on behalf uh, of uh, all of them. Uh, and he says, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he identifies the church of the Thessalonians. And, and I want to take just a moment, I don't want to take too long on this, but I want to take just a moment and give uh, just a little backstory on how the church came to be. In order for us to look at that backstory, we have to look at Acts chapter 17. And you don't have to turn there if you, if you don't want to, but you can. Uh, Acts 17, the first 14 verses tell us how this church came to be. Uh, and it says this, it says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom on the Sabbath days. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking uh, some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. 
And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and they came, and when they had taken money for security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And so pause there for, for just a moment. So Paul and Silas, they, they come into Thessalonica. Uh, Paul spent a few weeks, it tells us, reasoning with the Jews uh, in the synagogue, as was his custom. And as he did this, uh, people came to faith. Some Jews came to faith, some pagans came to faith, and it even says not a few of the leading women. So many leading women also came to faith. But then there was this, this rabble, the men of the rabble, what a great title it is for them. These men of the rabble, they formed a mob and they set the city in an uproar because they were upset at what Paul had done. They were upset that Paul had come in and proclaimed a king other than Caesar. They were upset that Paul came in and basically said, Jesus is better than Caesar. Jesus is deserving of our allegiance more so than Caesar. And it set the city in an uproar and these this rabble, they, they went to the city authorities and said that these men, they've turned the world upside down. And really, we know that, that they're helping turn the world right side up, right? But, but there was some contention as this church got off of the ground. And so there was this guy, Jason, who it would seem that that's where Paul and his buddies stayed at Jason's house. And so they're looking for Paul and his buddies and they can't find him. So they said, let's find this guy, Jason, and let's drag him before the authorities because he's putting these guys up and, and showing them hospitality. Um, and so they brought him before the authorities. Um, they got in trouble. They, they basically, they posted bail. We could read it that way. And then they let him go. But that wasn't the end of the story. It goes on to say that the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away, right, in fear for their life. They sent them away by night to Berea, so they snuck out of town. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue at Berea. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But then the Jews from Thessalonica, these men of the rabble, they learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also. So they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And the brothers immediately sent Paul on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. So, so you can see how this church got off the ground in Thessalonica. So think about our culture today. There's not many people, I don't think, uh, in our culture, at least here where we live, uh, who would argue uh, with a church plant. Right? People hear that a new church has started somewhere, generally people think, oh, that's great, right? not, not a big deal. Paul starts a church and, and they come to hunt him down. And so they have to send him away by night in order to save his life, presumably. And then he goes to the next town. They hear he's over there. So they say, let's go follow him over there. Let's stir it up there too, because we don't like what he's doing. There, there's tremendous opposition to uh, Paul's ministry here, to his church planting ministry uh, as he's on his second missionary journey. And, and that's not something that we really experience here. I mean, I don't think I've ever really read about a, a new church starting up somewhere, being planted somewhere where it's just caused contention, right? Um, I haven't heard of that. Uh, I recently uh, read an article uh, from over on the Oregon coast that there was uh, several churches feeding people, uh, churches scattered throughout neighborhoods feeding people, and, and some neighbors got upset uh, about the kind of people that that would draw into their neighborhoods. And so they actually went to the city council, and the city council, I think it was Lincoln City if I remember right, but it might not be, it was somewhere on the coast. Anyway, the city council decided, well, churches can only feed people for two days a week because of the complaints of the neighbors. That's probably the closest thing that we get to something like this, and that's really not even all that close. 
right? Even though that's, that's kind of crazy, we don't even expect something like that uh, in our culture. People are generally for churches that are doing good things in the community, feeding people, clothing people, housing people. Uh, even our, our own warming center here uh, has not garnered any complaints from any of our neighbors uh, at all. They're, they're generally for the church helping out and, and meeting needs in the community. But Paul, Paul starts this church and immediately it, there's contention. Immediately, there's some, a lot of people come to faith, but the people that don't come to faith, they're mad at him. They're upset and they want to hunt him down and they want to hurt him. They want to beat him for planting this church. And so this is the church when Paul says to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, that this is the church that he's talking about, the church that started with this great move. We, we might even today, if we were part of something like this, say that there was a revival that happened in Thessalonica. Jews came to faith, pagans came to faith, leading men and women in the city came to faith. Um, lots of people, we don't know how many people came to faith, but this would seem to indicate a lot of people came to faith. What an exciting time to be in church history, would it not? Um, but then there's this contention that immediately happens. And Paul, in the greeting of his letter, is reminding them just possibly a few short months later, so maybe the dust hasn't even quite settled from this contention. It's likely that it hasn't. Just a few short months later, reminding them that they are the church in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that it, it's God who, who makes things grow, right? We, God, God uses us to do the work, but he's the one that ultimately planted the church. He's the one that ultimately has caused the scales to fall off of people's eyes and caused people to come to faith because of what Jesus Christ has done. This is the church at Thessalonica. And then he says, grace to you and peace. John Stott in his commentary says this, it's truly remarkable to read Paul's comprehensive portrayal of the Thessalonian church. It's likely only a few months old and its members are newborn Christians, freshly converted from either Judaism or paganism. Their Christian convictions have been newly acquired. Their Christian moral standards have been recently adopted and they are being sorely tested by persecution. You would expect it to be a very wobbly church in a very precarious condition, but no. Paul is confident about it because he knows it's God's church because he has confidence in God. And so he reminds them of, of who God is and what God has done. And this simple great greeting of grace and peace to you gives them and gives us a reminder of the, by God's grace that we can have right standing before him. By God's grace, by his unmerited favor, by no act of our own, simply because God chooses that we can have right standing with him and peace, that we can have right relationship with God. This idea of peace, the word shalom, it doesn't just mean the absence of conflict, right? Sometimes when we think of peace, we think if there's no conflict in our life, you know, maybe, maybe we have peace. But, but this goes beyond the idea of just the absence of conflict. This, this goes on to include not only lack of conflict, but harmony with our creator, that creation is at harmony with the creator. That's shalom. And so grace and peace to you, right standing and right relationship with God. So in these few short words, Paul is actually saying quite a bit to this church that, as John Stott said, we might expect to be a bit wobbly and in a precarious situation. Grace and peace to you, right standing and right relationship with God. And then he gets into some virtues in verses two to four. It says that we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly, mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith 
and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And we're going to stop there for just a moment. Have you ever noticed in Paul's writings, I don't know if you guys have read a lot of Paul's writings, but, but if you notice, Paul often starts off his letters to these churches with some sort of thankfulness. And here's what I find interesting about this is that Paul's letters often include correction to the churches. So sometimes it's a bit harsh correction, sometimes it's a little more subtle. But Paul's letters often include correction, but he always starts out with some word of thankfulness for, for who he's writing to. And in the case of the Thessalonians, he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers. He's thankful. I was thinking the other day uh, about a circumstance that happened uh, here in our church, I don't know, several years ago, maybe four or five years ago. It's been a little while. Um, I wasn't at this particular meeting, but I got a phone call one day that there were a couple of uh, brothers that got in a fight at the prayer, like an argument at the prayer meeting, and, and they were kind of standing toe-to-toe, ready, ready to go. And I get this call after the fact that this happened, and it was just, you know, a shake my head kind of a moment, like, what in the world? And I was, I was thinking as it relates to this, just like not one of my finer pastoral moments at all, and I'm, you know, not, not proud to say this, but like, there was a, a moment, you know, maybe for about a week in this where just super frustrated, not real thankful for a couple of brothers having to deal with this, right? Um, Paul, you know, this was just convicting to me that, that Paul, even though he's often issuing correction in his letters, he, he's thankful for the people whom he's pastoring, right? We just see Paul's kind of shepherd's heart in this. We don't ever see Paul frustrated. We don't ever see Paul kind of, you know, face palming, shaking his head, like, what in the world? Why do I have to deal with this, right? These are the kinds of things that, that sometimes will go through my mind. In this particular instance, I'm just thinking, like, these are adults, right? Why do we have to deal with this? right? Paul, Paul is thankful even when he's bringing correction. He's loving even when he's bringing correction. Uh, and, and as we make our way through the letter, you'll see Paul is going to address some issues with the Thessalonians. We won't have time to get into those today, but as we make our way through the letter, you'll see Paul will address them and bringing some subtle correction to some of their ways of thinking. But he starts off by reminding them that he's thankful for them. And, and Again, this is a really fresh church plant just a few months into it. And so, so this kind of contentious moment, the, the moment of people coming to faith from all walks of life and all worldviews has to still be fresh in Paul's mind. He's still got to be kind of reeling from just this great move of God. And rather than focusing on, you know, I, I leave for a few months and, and you're off the rails, right? We, we might expect him to say something like that. No, He's thankful for what God has done and what God is continuing to do. And, and pastorally, he's understanding these are, these are some new Christians and, and they need help and they need some guidance. And he's going to provide that as we make our way through the letter. And so he gives thanks to God the Father for all of them. Not, not, not just some of them, not just the good ones, not just the easy ones, but he's thankful for all of them. And notice that Paul's prayers often in his writings are always outward. It's pretty rare that you hear Paul saying, man, it's going really hard for me. If you, if you all could pray for me, I'd really appreciate it. You, you don't see Paul saying that. And, and we know that kind of, you know, just what we read in, in Acts chapter 17, you know, Paul goes into the town, uh, great move of God, and they have to sneak him out of town at night in fear for his life. That, that seems like that would be worthy to mention in a letter. Hey, I had to sneak out of town. People are coming after me. If you all could pray for me, that would be great. He, he doesn't do that. He's like, oh, I'm, I'm praying for you. As I'm on the run, 
right? As I'm running from town to town so I don't get beat up or thrown in jail, although those things do happen to him, it's like, I'm praying for you, right? There's a lesson for us to learn in that of just kind of thinking outside of ourselves and thinking beyond ourselves. And it's not to say that, you know, praying for ourselves, we can do that, right? I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. But, But you see this pattern in the life of Paul where he's always, I'm praying for you. Even though things are difficult for me, I'm praying for you. And what he's praying is he's praying in thankfulness to God. God, thank you for the Thessalonians. Thank you for what you did there. Thank you for the work of your hand in bringing people to faith from all these walks of life. Thank you for establishing this church, even though it was in a contentious manner, in this kind of center of culture and philosophy where where the gospel continues to be proclaimed. He's thankful for that. And he's not only praying these things once, but he says constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Are, are, are we challenged with, like, how often do we pray for other people in our life? I've talked about this before. Oftentimes, you know, my prayers to God are like, God, here's my list of, you know, all the ways that you could do things better. Right? Change this, fix this, don't do that, don't let this happen, you know, whatever praying for things in my own life. And, and again, we, we, we can and should pray for those things, but here we see Paul constantly mentioning them in his prayers, right? Do, do we pray for others in our lives, remembering them before God, our God and Father? And what is it that he's remembering before our God and Father? He's remembering three specific things about the church at Thessalonica. The first thing he's remembering is their work of faith. Now, what, what, what he's saying here, this idea of work of faith, we could translate that word work and in, in, put in its place activity, the activity of faith. What he's saying here is that, that I can see that your faith is real because of the way that you live. I can see in the midst of this contentious city that you're in that your faith is real because you, you maintain your faith in the midst of this precarious situation. Your faith is active. Your faith is apparent in the way that you live. It shows in your life that your faith is authentic because of how you live. It would be really easy in this situation where there's this contention to say, you know what, we need to take the church underground, right? Let's just quietly, you know, meet in somebody's house without a lot of fanfare, kind of a thing that they didn't do that. It would be easy for Paul when he went from place to place not to go straight to the synagogue or to the public square and reason with people and stir the pot. It might be easier for Paul if he just kind of quietly maybe went from house to house. Not, not, not causing any riots or anything, but no, he didn't. That There's this activity of faith that says, I have to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have to live out the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul commends them as he remembers them in his prayers for their work of faith with the emphasis being on a faith that's active, a faith that does something. Think about this. If you, let's say that you joined a club, let's say you joined one of the animal clubs, the elks, the moose, the uh, you know, whatever, one of those clubs, sign, sign your name on the line, um, but you never go there. Do you have a membership that's active if you don't, participate in the activities of the club? Not really. Right? Be, being a follower of Christ, in what Paul is talking about here, is there's, there's an activeness or an activity that comes with faith. Like our faith has to work itself out 
in the way that we live. And he's commending the Thessalonians for the outworking of their faith, for the activity of their faith. And then he commends them for their labor of love. And you might ask, well, is it work of faith and labor of love? Those, that sounds kind of like the same thing, but he's talking about something entirely different here. When he talks about the labor of love, the idea of labor is this hard, intense work. So it kind of goes beyond having a faith that's active, but a faith that actively engages maybe in some difficult things as we swim upstream from our culture. And, and we don't understand this, I don't think, all that well, because for a lot of years, for my whole life, maybe for some of you, even you know, your whole lives, it's been pretty easy to be a Christian in America. We don't get a lot of pushback. I'm starting to get a little pushback now with, with where culture is going, but even that, not that bad really not that difficult. It's not that difficult um, to, to, to talk to people about who Christ is, even if they disagree with it. It's not that bad. Uh, you know, we're, we're not being persecuted like what we see Paul and his buddies being persecuted. That just doesn't happen to us here in America. Other places in the world, we, we read about it in the news, headlines, things that happen, but, but right here, not that difficult. For Paul in his day, there was this labor of love Paul going from town to town, knowing the same thing's going to happen to me again, probably in Thessalonica that just happened to me in Philippi. People probably aren't going to be real hip on what I'm trying to do here. Paul knows that. Yet he continues to march forward because he can't not do it. Right? He can't not let his faith be active in his life. He can't not proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, no matter the consequence. This is kind of the, this labor of love doing hard things as they pertain to our faith, right? We, we, li we live in a place, in a, in a time, and in a culture where um, we can live pretty comfortably, and most of us live pretty comfortably. Even compared to other parts of the world, we all live really comfortably. I read a statistic years ago that said 51% of the world lives on less than $2 a day. I don't know if that's still true. It probably is not vastly different than it was 10 years ago, right? We live really comfortably. And we tend not to do things either as, as a church as a whole or as individuals, we tend not to do things to, to stir the pot because we, we don't want contention, right? We want people to think well of us. And, and there's some good reasons for that. But Paul, Paul engages in this labor of love, this work, this hard work driven by his love for people, ultimately driven by his love for God that says, I've got to go from place to place and I've got to plant church after church after church after church, even if that means I'm going to be beat up for it, even if that means I'm going to be thrown in jail, even if that means I'm going to be tortured for it. Paul remarks in his letter to the Philippians that to live is Christ, to die is gain. And the way that I have often read that is that if I were to die right now, it would be better for me because this life is hard. But for me to continue to live means that I get to proclaim Christ to that many more people. That, that's, that's labor of love. And Paul is commending this brand new church plant who, as Stott pointed out, like their legs might still be a little bit wobbly, their convictions are still pretty new. He's commending this, this new church that not only do they have an active faith that, that's apparent by the way that they live, but they're engaging in this hard, intense work because of their love for God and their love for the things that God loves, namely people who are destined to hell. And then he commends them for their steadfast hope, or another way we could say that is that they're enduringness, they're enduring under trial. 
He commends them for enduring. And again, brand new church, their trial hasn't been all that long. It's not like it's been like this for you know, two years or five years or 10 years of difficulty. This is just you know, a few months likely of new believers enduring a difficulty. And Paul commends them for their steadfastness of hope. These believers right out of the gate began suffering for their faith. Think about when you came to faith in Christ. If there were suffering right out of the gate, would you have stayed the course? Don't know. You might expect that because of the immediate suffering and the immediate persecution, it might have caused some of those people to say, you know what, this isn't what I signed up for. I'm out. That may have happened. I don't know. But, but it would seem that, that by and large, that, that these people that came to faith that their faith was authentic and real because Paul is commending them for it. He's commending them for suffering because of their faith, being persecuted because of their faith. And, and we, we don't know suffering and persecution like this. A time may come here, who, who knows, but we don't know it at the moment. And so when I talk about virtues of the church, this is what I'm talking about here. The work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope. These were characteristics that marked this brand new church in Thessalonica right out of the gate. And it's been my prayer this week as I've been putting this together that, that those things would mark our church. Even though we're not brand new and we're not right out of the gate, we're not that old, right? That our church would be marked by our work of faith, our labor of love, and our steadfastness of hope. Stott also goes on to say in his commentary on Thessalonians, that faith rests on the past, love works in the present, and hope looks to the future. And faith isn't entirely in the, in the past. We have a faith that also looks forward. But, but as he's talking about this, this context, um, matter of fact, I think it was Chuck Smith was always famous for saying that, that God's past faithfulness demands our present trust, right? Looking back on what God has done in our own lives, looking back in scripture, what God has done for us, it demands a response from us. It demands that we either accept or reject it. And as we accept it, we have a faith that's rooted with a long history of God doing things for his people. Love works in the present. Love works now, right? Because of our love for God and our love for the things that God loves, that that causes us to engage in this intense sometimes difficult work of like, people are hard to love. Let, let's just be real, right? P people are hard to love sometimes. It's not always easy. Love requires sacrifice. I think we, we might even say in the absence of sacrifice, do, do, we, do we have love? Maybe not. Love requires and demands sacrifice. And so that sacrifice, it works in the present. It works in the here and the now, the things that, that we do as the outworking of our Christian faith are not so that we can earn favor with God. Christ has already done that on our behalf. But the things that we do in our Christian life are not so that we can earn favor with society because that doesn't always work out. Look at, look at Paul as an example. The things that we do, the outworking of our faith, the, the activities in which we engage in the here and now are because we love God and because we love the people that God loves. And so we serve and we sacrifice and we do hard things and we swim upstream and we do things that are counter to our culture because God loves us. And because God loves 
people who, who are on a crash course with the ultimate death. James Grant, in his commentary on Thessalonians, says it's like this. In our present life, we are called forward in hope. And that future, the hope we have, comes back into the present and encourages us to be patient as we run this race, as difficult as it may be. Hebrews 12 reminds us that Christ, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross. And we're encouraged to run our race whether it's downhill with the wind at your back or uphill against the wind to run the race and following Christ's example that we do so with the joy that's set before us, the hope that we have of heaven, the hope that we have that that there's going to come a day where life on this earth is over and, and we are in eternity with our creator for those who trust Christ. The work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope virtues that mark the church. And then Paul goes on to say that we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you. He gives them this reminder. And you can imagine that this brand new church may be wondering like what's going on with all this persecution. Have we made the right decision here? Should we change our tactic? And Paul reminds them, we know, not that we think, but we know brothers or brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, that you're loved by God and that he has chosen you. That this, that, that one statement right there, brothers loved by God, we, we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you. That statement is the basis of our faith. It's the basis of our work of love. It's the basis of our steadfastness of hope. And it's what Paul is ultimately thankful for. He's thankful that for God's electing love that has chosen this brand new church in this cultural city of Thessalonica. If, if Paul were thankful for the things that they do, like if, if that's all that he were thankful for, if he were thankful uh, because they're good Christians, if he were thankful that, that they were enduring hard things simply because of those things in and of themselves, we might ask, well, what happens when they decide that the enduring of tough things is too tough and they don't want to do it anymore? But Paul's thankfulness ultimately is of God's election, not, not necessarily what the people are doing. If Paul's thankfulness for, were for anything other than God's election, we would have to read this passage that the virtues are of the people in and of themselves, not of God's work. I hope that makes sense. Paul is saying here that God has chosen the Thessalonians, the people of Thessalonica, based on his own electing love. In order to understand this, we have to look back uh, at the Old Testament into Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 8. Deuteronomy tells us this. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. This is speaking to Israel. And it says, It's not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and the hand of Pharaoh 
king of Egypt. And we're reminded in this passage in Deuteronomy that God chose the people of Israel not because they were mighty, not because they were the strongest army, not because they were the smartest or the fastest, not because they were the richest. Matter of fact, we're told that they, they were the fewest of the peoples. And if you read Israel's history, you see that they were always under somebody's thumb. They were always, it seems like, oppressed by somebody bigger and smarter and faster and stronger than them. And it says here that God had chosen them to be a people for his treasured possession, not for any other reason except that the Lord set his love upon them and he chose them. God's electing love. And so we might ask, well, what, what is it that Israel brought to the table? Really nothing. What, what is it in what Paul is saying to the Thessalonians that makes them think that they brought anything to the table? They don't bring anything to the table. Matter of fact, this brand new church is being persecuted. We, we might say, well, that, that's maybe not a successful church if they haven't won over you know, the, the, the affections of the people in their city. We might say, well, it's not going well, therefore it's not successful. That's not how God measures success. 1 John 4.19 reminds us that the only reason that we love God is why? Because he first loved us. It's God's electing love, God's choosing love that, that initiates the relationship that we have with him. It's, it's not the other way around. It's not our love for him that causes him to love us. That's not what the Bible teaches it's God's electing love choosing us, and our love is only possible because he first loved us, because he's opened the eyes of the blind and allowed us to see and to hear the truth of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul is thankful, ultimately, for God's electing love. And then in verse 5, he gives us a reason. He says, because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And we're only going to look at half the verse today. So they call that 5A. When there's two sentences in a verse, there's A and there's B. So it's 5A, right? We're going to stop there at 5A. Paul reminds them that the gospel first and foremost came to them, right? That, that's an important Reminder, the gospel came to them, and how is it that it came to them? It came to them in word and in power and in the Holy Spirit. Right? You, you've heard the famous saying, I'm sure, time and time again, preach the gospel whenever necessary, use words. I would submit to you that it's always necessary to use words. Right? We, we have a saying like that, and we put it up on our refrigerator, and we feel like that kind of gets us off the hook. Like, I don't ever have to say anything to anybody. I can just be a nice person, and people will see Jesus in me. Great, good for you. It's always necessary to use words when proclaiming the gospel, because the gospel is a word. The gospel is a message. The gospel is something that needs to be proclaimed. Yes, it needs to be lived, but it also needs to be proclaimed, right? And part of the way that the gospel came to Thessalonica was in word. Paul came into the town and he went into the synagogue and he reasoned with people and he showed them, we're told, who Christ was and what Christ has done and that Christ is ultimately king over and above Caesar. Right? Paul used words to proclaim the gospel. And as a result of those words, the gospel came in power. And it's not the words that are powerful. Right? It's, it's the subject matter of the gospel that's powerful. It, it's Christ who's powerful. And that power came 
in the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Spirit illuminating people to understand and to believe the truth of the gospel. A.W. Tozer talks about that, that like, we can't just come solely on an intellectual basis to the scriptures. We can't. We can't solely come to God based on our intellect. We can't ever get to a place where we're smart enough to say, okay, this all makes sense, therefore, you know, I must trust Christ solely intellectually. He's not saying that we check our intellect at the door, not saying that at all, but he's saying this is more than an intellectual endeavor, faith in Christ. And it requires that the Holy Spirit illuminate our minds. It requires that the Holy Spirit allow us to see and to hear this truth and for this truth to take root in our lives. That's the work of God. It's a work of God that we believe. And because that's a work of God, then this came with full conviction. Again, as Stott pointed out, their convictions are pretty brand new in this church. But, but Paul, in his letter, reminds them that they have full conviction. They have a complete conviction. This makes me think of Romans chapter 10. Maybe you're familiar. Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 9, says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. Pretty simple, right? Confess with your mouth. And, and I think it means more than just uttering some words. It means more than just uttering a, you know, some kind of incantation. But, but the, the words that you confess with your mouth, that you have the conviction that those words are true. That's why he doesn't stop at confessing with your mouth. He says that you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, that you have full conviction of the truth of the gospel. Paul elsewhere tells us that if Christ was not raised from the dead, then essentially the wheels on the bus of Christianity come off. If Christ was not resurrected, if he didn't conquer death, what, what do we have? The, the entirety of the gospel hinges on the fact that Christ conquered death. If Christ didn't conquer death, then his story is just a story of a good man that was tragically tortured. But because Christ conquered death, we can say that he conquered sin. And because Christ conquered death, we can say he's worthy of my faith and he's worthy of my allegiance and my trust because he walked out of the grave. Paul goes on to say in Romans 10 that with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and, it's, and is saved. And this is just a picture of, of what it means to have full conviction. Belief in your heart, confession with your mouth. He goes on a few verses later in Romans 10, 13 to say that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And this is why Paul engaged in this labor of love, this hard work of going from town to town, planting church after church, and later writing letters to correct their weird thinking. Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's why we do what we do here every week. It's why we gather on Sundays. It's why we do all the things we do midweek. Because anyone and everyone that would call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we have a message that he's given us to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 17, Paul tells us that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. Again, always necessary to use words when proclaiming the gospel. And this is by God's design. Faith comes through the hearing of a message. Right? How many of you came to faith through the hearing of a message? Probably all of you. You heard some kind of message somewhere, whether it was in a church service, whether it was with a friend, one-on-one. -on -one. TV, radio, whatever, maybe you read a book, 
You all heard a message in some way that lent itself to you coming to faith and hearing, we're told, comes through the word of Christ. And so that's why we would say that we're a word-centered church because the word of Christ is the basis for what we do. It's the basis of our faith. And so what, what can we take away from this, these first five verses of Thessalonians? That there are some virtues that mark the church, faith, hope, and love. And those things will work themselves out in a very tangible sort of a way. But ultimately, the fact that we can have faith, that we can have hope, that we can have love is the result of God's electing love to us. God's setting his mind to love us, oftentimes, maybe always, in spite of us. We're, we're not as lovable as we tend to probably think that we are. Right? Peggy mentioned the song earlier, prone to wander. Right? We're all prone to wander in, in our own ways. Yet God loves us, even in our wandering. God pursues us, even in our wandering. And it's his electing love that has allowed us to receive the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's his electing love that has caused us to believe the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's his electing love that allows us as, as a church to be a beacon in our community of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so be encouraged by that uh, this morning and let me pray for us. Father, we're thankful for today. Thankful that you uh, first and foremost love us even when we're not all that lovable. Thankful, thankful that you pursue us, that you choose us, that you've called us to belief. And uh, God, I would pray uh, for us today that you would help us to be people that would uh, engage in these virtues of the church, faith, hope, and love. That we would be people that would be beacons of light in our community of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, through our Sunday gatherings, through our events like Trunk or Treat later today, through our Bible studies and home groups that meet throughout the week, and even just as individuals uh, that live in a community that, that work here and that buy groceries here and that buy gas here, and, uh, that we would uh, engage in our community, engaging in the labor of love um, with the understanding that, that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord would be saved. God, help us to be people who proclaim the gospel. Help us to be people who live the gospel. Uh, and we would just pray collectively today that we would see people uh, come into our midst, coming to faith in Christ from all walks of life and all worldviews, God, that you would uh, use us um, to bring people to faith. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.